You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. When you have a Caesar problem, you never sleep! It's been months and the blockade has not lifted. Your men are getting restless. They seethe in the streets of Brundisium and you pace the walls, casting your eyes across the windswept sea to Greece. You can see the sharp hills of Epirus on a clear day and all the way off across that bright water, you know he's there. Your commander, you can feel him. He pulls at you from the hostile shores south of Dyrrhachium, waiting for you. The last time you saw Caesar, he was assembling his convoy in the middle of the night, preparing to cross a strait teeming with enemy vessels. The danger was great, but he was undaunted. He turned to you as he boarded, clasped your forearm in his, and told you not to keep him waiting long. He was counting on you to bring the rest of the army and all of his supplies. But then the blockade tightened. The enemy knows you're coming. The spying vessels have tripled and the enemy watches the crossing like a hawk. No inch of these waters isn't patrolled. When they catch your triremes, they set them on fire with all of the crew aboard. A blazing message writ large across the sky. Try this crossing and die. Your officers are divided. Some of them think you should still try. Others advise you to wait. Caesar cast his dice on the banks of the Rubicon, but who knows how those dice will land. They whisper in your ear, let Caesar and Pompey destroy each other. With both of them gone, you'll be the only man in Rome with an army. You could inherit the spoils. But you aren't built that way. You're a straightforward soul. People tend not to take you seriously. In your youth, you were full of violence. You ran with the worst of the street gangs, pissed your money away on wine and women. It was Caesar who lifted you out of all that. He knew how to harness your violence and put it to use. And when he fled across the sea on Pompey's trail, the one he left in charge was you. Even if you were a more devious kind, you wouldn't turn on Caesar. You know he's out there, outnumbered on a beach somewhere, 
with only half his army and no supplies, facing an enemy better armed and better equipped with deeper pockets and all the advantages. If anyone could survive for months under such conditions, it's him. But every day you don't cross is another day he risks death. Everything depends on you now. You have to move soon. Finally, you see it. An opening. The slightest opportunity. The enemy's blockade has a chink in its armor. You rush to the harbor, calling your men to you. Your ships are supplied and they're ready to go, and you move under cover of night, punching through the blockade. You stand at the helm with the wind at your back. Beneath your feet, your men put their strength to their oars and row. You close your eyes and pray to the gods he holds out. Just one more night on that hostile strip of beach. You'll show him. You keep your promises. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. In our last episode, Caesar had crossed the Rubicon, an action that immediately rendered him an outlaw and an enemy of the Roman people. It put a death sentence on his head and the heads of his troops. Even so, as he marched down the boot of Italy, Caesar used clemency as propaganda, letting his captives go free and quickly taking control of the entire peninsula before strolling into Rome all casual-like and declaring himself dictator and consul. Because he was all about the two for one. He really was. Pompey, meanwhile, had sailed off to Dyrrachium in Greece to start building an army, and Caesar was finally ready to take the war to him. He marched to Brundisium, the town on the southeastern end of Italy that was the jumping off point for trips to Dyrrachium. But there was still a serious boat shortage in Brundisium. Caesar had about 25,000 to 30,000 troops to get across the sea, and only 12 warships. Unless he wanted to wait a while for more boats to be found or built, Caesar would have to make more than one trip. This was dangerous for Caesar. It meant dividing his army, leaving half of his troops to wait on the shores of Dyrrachium, vulnerable to attack while the rest arrived. And Pompey outnumbered Caesar by a lot, even when Caesar had his full armed forces. The other problem was that Pompey did not have a boat shortage. He had about 500 warships and a ton of scouting and spying vessels patrolling the seas between Rome and Greece. For Caesar, getting his transports across meant threading a needle of highly patrolled, dangerous waters in several trips. Who was in charge of Pompey's warships, by the way? Bibulus. Oh, Bibulus is back. I missed him. He finally left his house. <laughs> he finally got off Tumblr. Come outside and see the sun, Bibulus. You remember him. Caesar's co-consul from his first consulship. Do you mean in the consulship of Gaius and Julius? I believe that's the consulship of Julius and Caesar, actually. Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. He's the guy with not that much charisma, but really good at meme making, who Caesar drove into house arrest and then managed their consulship alone. And I gotta say, a lot of people from Caesar's younger years in Rome had joined Pompey, including Cicero and also Cato, who'd swore never to cut his hair or beard until this was resolved one way or another. So Cato was going a little, uh... He was getting shaggy here. Caesar had two options for getting his troops to Greece. Go now in several trips across dangerous seas or allow more time to find or build more ships. But waiting just meant giving Pompey more time to build up his strength. The one advantage Caesar had was that his troops were experienced, while Pompey's were barely trained. So once again, Caesar decided to take the faster and more dangerous path. In January of 48 BC, Caesar led his first convoy across. It was the middle of winter, and this was the only advantage 
Caesar had, armies usually took a break in the winter and Pompey's army was dispersed and locked down in winter quarters. Nobody was expecting Caesar. But they should have been. I mean, Caesar did this all the time. This is like the Caesar playbook. Nobody's expecting me. I'm going to be there. Right. Let's go down our checklist of are you about to have a Caesar problem? Number one, is it winter? (laughs) Yes. Right. (laughs) Number two, are you not expecting Caesar right at this exact moment? (laughs) Let me think about that. No, I'm not. Right. Number three, is there anyone in your vicinity with a suspiciously fake looking Gallic moustache? Moustache. Because Caesar had a collection. (laughs) He did. (laughs) He's like the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects Julius Caesar. Except he actually wrote a playbook and published it called The Commentaries, which if you'd read, you knew to expect Julius Caesar. Right. Caesar's playbook was out there. It wasn't a secret. He does this shit all the time. I have zero, zero sympathy for people not expecting Julius Caesar right at this very moment. Caesar managed to sneak his first transport across to Dyrrhachium right under Bibulus's nose because Bibulus wasn't expecting him to move quite this fast. Because Bibulus forgot the rules. When you have a Caesar problem... You never sleep. When you have a Caesar problem, you get up early, you go to bed late, you do not sleep. Vercingetorix could have told you this. Well, Vercingetorix is in the horrible hole. Right, and it's to everybody's discredit because nobody's asking his advice right now. Ooh, that would have been a good thing to do. Right? I bet Vercingetorix would have had some thoughts. Oh, yeah. Some really good thoughts. The convoy of ships got over to the other side, dropped off their passengers, and were on the way back before Bibulus realized what was happening. But Bibulus did manage to catch a couple of boats on the way back, and he had these boats burned with all of their crew on board. So now Bibulus was on high alert, and he tightened up his blockade. Caesar had gone across with the first group, and he was now in a precarious position, waiting in the ancient region of Epirus, an area known for its rugged, mountainous terrain, its strong fetiches, and for being the stomping grounds of Pyrrhus of Epirus. He of the Unitooth and the magic toe and the commitment to universal spleen healthcare. Land pirate and elephant adventurer. I get excited about the universal spleen healthcare. I know. And you can find out more about Pyrrhus of Epirus in War Elephants Part 2. Caesar's army was at half its strength in enemy territory, and because he'd had so few boats, he'd had to go over with the absolute bare minimum of supplies. Not to mention, Bibulus was now onto him, which meant Pompey was now onto him, and Bibulus and his fleet would be on high alert for the next convoy. Caesar pulled out an old trick from Gaul. He immediately mounted a lightning attack against several local towns for supplies. Most of these towns had garrisons of Pompey's soldiers stationed inside, but most surrendered without a fight. They did not want to become a war zone all of a sudden. Caesar captured most of Epirus quickly and then marched north toward Dyrrhachium, Pompey's supply depot. Meanwhile, the bear was rousing. Pompey had just seen a number of towns he thought were loyal to him immediately fold to Caesar, and now Caesar was force-marching his army right to the nerve center of Pompey's campaign, threatening his entire supply chain. Pompey booked it to Dyrrhachium, just barely making it there before Caesar did. Bibulus was watching the crossing like a hawk. The next convoy of Caesar's ships was forced to turn back, and when Bibulus captured one of the ships in the convoy, he had everyone on board put to death, because that was the thing he did. Bibulus is just gonna Bibulus, and it involves burning your ship with all your people on it. That's what it means to Bibulus. And that's just how much he despised Caesar. Meanwhile, Caesar was in a desperate situation. He had few supplies and he was desperately outnumbered. He tried to reach Dyrrhachium to cut Pompey's legs out from under him, but it hadn't worked. And now Pompey had him pinned down on the shores of the river Apsus. The two armies eyed each other from opposite banks of the river. Caesar knew his only option. If the rest of his army didn't reach him, he would be fighting his way out through Pompey's army, which 
vastly outnumbered his. The situation was so bad that Caesar tried to sue for peace. Pompey refused each attempt. So Caesar sent more envoys and more envoys and more envoys. It was like, Can we have peace now? No. Can we have peace now? No. How about now? No. I got some feta cheese. Peace. Stop it. Peace. I bring you pizza. No. Peace. Stop it. Stop asking. Stop asking. Stop it. <laughs> peace. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. For weeks, nothing happened except Caesar sending his extremely annoying envoys to Pompey and Pompey slapping them down. But here's the thing. It was a stalling tactic. Even as he sued for peace, Caesar was tightening the screws on Bibulus. Bibulus had 500 warships out at sea, and Caesar was dispersing his troops to ports all along the coastline, taking over the harbors and making it impossible for those warships to land. Adrian Goldsworthy tells us why this was a problem for the warships. I'm assuming these were triremes or quadriremes, which were immense multi-level vessels with as many as 300 rowers. These vessels got their speed and maneuverability from their huge banks of rowers, three or four levels sometimes. Their specialty was picking up speed quickly and ramming enemy ships with bronze battering rams fitted in the front of the boat below the waterline. These vessels relied on the strength of their rowers, not wind speed, for their power. That meant huge crews and little space for supplies. Every spare inch of room was taken up by rowers. There wasn't even a lot of room for the rowers to move around, take breaks, stretch their legs, or sleep because their body weight evenly distributed was the ship's only ballast. Basically, while they were in their rowing positions, they were in those positions. There was no moving around. There was no having a coffee break or stretching your legs. You were just like locked in place. So it was really important for the warships to make landfall at least every three days or so, if not more often, so they could give their poor crews a bathroom break and stock up on supplies. Most of the time, these ships worked close to their bases or were heavily supported by land land-based armies. But now, Caesar's men controlled the ports of Epirus, all except for Dyrrhachium, and the crews of Bibulus's warships were dying for a bathroom break. Bibulus had two options. He could dock his triremes, get his rowers out to fight Caesar's troops, and clear out the ports so he could resupply his ships. Or he could make his rowers white-knuckle it and maintain the blockade. He couldn't do both. Bibulus sent an envoy to try to persuade Caesar to back off the ports, but he offered nothing in exchange. He refused to lift the blockade, which is what Caesar wanted. It's like negotiation 101, Bibulus. You have to offer the other party something that they want. But Bibulus, for some reason, just missed this memo. So Caesar was like, lol, no. Bibulus absolutely, positively would not lift that blockade. He had one job, and that job was to make sure Caesar did not get his supplies or additional troops across that strait. Bibulus was not backing off, but his job proved too much for him. Not long after his ill-fated attempt to negotiate, Bibulus was seized with what Caesar in the commentaries calls a, quote, violent distemper, probably brought on by cold and fatigue. He was on board one of his ships when he fell sick, and he couldn't be treated on board. But he wasn't willing to desert his one single job of holding the blockade to make landfall and find a doctor. So Bibulus died of exhaustion and exposure, or sheer clenched-jawed stubbornness, depending on how you see it. He was about 60 years old. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes. 
a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, Pompey and Caesar continued to stare each other down from opposite sides of this river, and things were getting increasingly hostile, because there's only so many times anyone can listen to me say, peace, before they want to smack me. And here's where I want to take a detour to talk about the general environment in Pompey's camp. Pompey was the legitimate Roman Senate-approved side of this conflict, and most of the leading men of Rome were now in his camp. That would be the best men. Ugh. Pompey was a very experienced general. He was aware that sometimes it was good to seize the initiative, but other times it was better to wait your enemy out and let them burn through their supplies. Pompey understood Caesar's position as well as Caesar did, and he judged that his best bet right now was to sit tight and let Caesar's army get desperate. Because Pompey's advantage over Caesar was that he had more supplies. Caesar's advantage over Pompey was that his troops were more experienced. If it came to a head-to-head battle, Pompey wasn't confident he could win. But Pompey could afford to wait, and Caesar couldn't. Still, the leading men in Pompey's camp didn't see the wisdom in this. They pushed Pompey to act quickly and teach Caesar a lesson. They also spent a lot of time bickering among themselves over which one would hold which positions in government when they finally defeated Caesar and returned to Rome in triumph. A few sent messengers to Rome to buy up fancy real estate near the Forum in anticipation of their cushy new jobs that they were definitely going to have in the near future. There was a lot of hateful rhetoric going on and it was coming from Pompey's side. And we're not getting that from Caesar, believe it or not. We're off the commentaries now. The place I'm getting this from is Cicero. Oh, Cicero. I love Cicero so hard and I'm gonna talk about why in a minute. Cicero was there in Pompey's camp. He did not have a pro-Caesar agenda and he tells us himself. Here's how Cicero described the situation in Pompey's camp. Quote, I prefer to be ruled by honor and reputation rather than to consider the safety of my life. This is why he sided with Pompey and not Caesar. Of this decision, I afterwards repented, not so much on account of the danger I incurred, as because of the many fatal weaknesses which I found on arrival at Pompey's camp. In the first place, troops neither numerous nor on a proper war footing. In the second place, beyond the general and a few others, I am speaking of the men of rank, the rest, to begin with, greedy for plunder in conducting the war itself, and moreover so bloodthirsty in their talk that I shuddered at the idea of victory itself. Cicero was horrified to find that in Pompey's camp, the best men who'd sided with Pompey were calling those who'd chosen to stay neutral as bad as those who'd actively sided with Caesar, and were even calling for violent purges when they got back to Rome. When Caesar made his attempts to sue for peace, Pompey refused each attempt. It seemed like Caesar's policy of mercy, with its obvious undercurrent of, I suffer you to live, really grated on his enemies. I can't possibly figure out why. I know. Pompey declared he'd never allow peace as long as it meant giving the impression he owed his life to Caesar's generosity. Labienus, one of Caesar's own top commanders in Gaul, one of the few who defected to Pompey when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, said at one point that there'd be no discussion of peace until someone brought him Caesar's head. I mean, those are fighting words. Yeah, weeks stretched into months, and still, Caesar's second convoy didn't come. Bibulus had died, but the blockade was still being maintained. Caesar started getting antsy that maybe the rest of his men on the other side weren't going to come at all. Maybe they decided to sit this out and adopt a neutral stance. Finally, Caesar couldn't stand to sit still anymore. He decided to pull 
a Caesar, which meant disguising himself as one of his own slaves, possibly with a moustache, commandeering a merchant vessel and forcing the crew to set sail in bad weather across the strait so he could figure out what was going on over there by himself. When the boat got out to sea and started really getting beat up by the storm, the crew almost turned back until Caesar stood up, threw back his cloak and said, be of good cheer, you carry Caesar, which I mean, again, with the third person Caesar, it's just like at this point, he talks about himself in third person all the time. Like, you just can't have a conversation with this guy. Anyway, Caesar made the crew redouble their efforts to get across, but unfortunately, the weather did not get the memo that this was supposed to be a heroic Caesar moment. Eventually, they were all forced to turn back. Caesar trailed into camp, wet and bedraggled, and looking like something the cat had hacked up. I mean, Heloise. Please. You don't want to look like something Heloise just coughed right up in the middle of my living room floor. It means you are just a tad beyond disheveled. Absolutely. His soldiers crowded around him. Their feelings hurt that he didn't think he could defeat the enemy with them alone. Caesar had to do some emotional labor and assuage some hurt feelings. But not long after that event, after months of waiting, the convoy made it across, led by none other than Mark Antony. Here he is making his heroic entrance into the story. I mean, I did not know a lot about Mark Antony until Jenny did the primary research on this episode, until she started telling me facts about him. He is just... Oh my God, just wait. It's so good. It's just, you can't see my eyes right now. They're shining with happy tears for what you're going to learn. He's great, okay? We're not going to get to the really good stuff for a little bit of time yet, but there is some good stuff in this. And just trust me, it's so worth the wait. So Mark Antony was about 17 years younger than Caesar. He was a plebeian, one of the common people, but kind of an upper middle class plebeian. His grandfather was a famous orator who'd been put to death by Marius. I mean, everybody had a family member who died in the Sulla and Marius situation. His dad had died trying to subdue the pirates in the Mediterranean before Pompey straightened it all out. And his stepdad, Lentillus, who was known for living lavishly and being heavily in debt. His name meant lentil, so he probably had a lentil farm. Or his ancestors did way back or something. Exactly. He got embroiled in the Catiline conspiracy and he was put to death by Cicero. So Antony grew up lacking a father figure. Enter Julius Caesar. In his teenage years, Antony basically ran wild. And his interest included drinking, fucking, and participating in gang wars. He wandered around Rome with a dangerous crowd of other sons of upwardly mobile families. He spent his time drinking, gambling, joining violent street gangs, and having sex with other people's wives and racking up debt. Because you can't be a protege of Caesar if you're not willing to have sex with other people's wives. I know. I mean, you can see where they have a lot in common right there. Absolutely. Plutarch tells us that Antony accumulated over 250 talents of debt while he was still a teenager. And I shudder to even think of how much money that is in modern times. And also we don't know what the talents were, gold or silver. Right, gold or silver, it makes a huge difference. And we actually break down how much a talent was worth in Julius Caesar and the Pirate's Ransom. So 250 talents is like astronomical. That's a lot of debt. Antony's debt got so bad that at the age of 25, Antony pieced out to Greece to escape his creditors. Skipping town at convenient times, yet another thing that he has in common with Caesar. <laughs> it's like there was a Caesar playbook and Antony studied it. Right. Hmm. What would that be? 
Antony hung out in Athens for a while, studying oratory and philosophy. I mean, as you do. But eventually, about four years later, a friend of a friend landed Antony a job with Julius Caesar's military staff right before Caesar headed off to Gaul. Caesar liked Antony. He saw a lot of himself in Antony. He promoted him to legate and gave him command of two legions, and he even made him head of cavalry in the Battle of Elysia. Ooh, does that mean he got to ride out with a German cavalry and do his dressage? He probably did. He probably knew his passage. He he knew his like dressage techniques. But more frequently, during Caesar's almost decade in Gaul, he used Antony for another purpose, sending him back to Rome periodically to serve as one of his agents there. While he was in Gaul, Caesar seated the Senate with people on his side who could be counted on to advance his interests and defend him against his enemies. Antony was one of those. And while other people Caesar used were kind of subtle negotiators, I suspect that Servilia was one of these people here, a back-channel player, very subtle, who operated on Caesar's behalf. Antony was his bludgeon. He got elected tribune of the plebs, where he smacked down law after law that attempted to reduce Caesar's power. Adrian Goldsworthy tells us that, quote, As tribune, Antony's strident character would make him hard to ignore and even harder for Caesar's opponents to browbeat. Antony became known for delivering extremely vitriolic speeches against Caesar's enemies and for giving absolutely zero fucks. He was kind of the anti-Cato. We talked about Cato in the last episode, and he's he's a treat. We just love Cato. We just love it. Go back and listen to Cato. We do rag on him a lot. We do, but we also let you know that he had some good points. There were some things he was right about. Anyway, getting back to our Antony and his speeches. One time, after launching into a furious speech that attacked Pompey's career, his face, his fashion sense, his entire existence, the way he parted his hair, all the things he'd done, and then rounded things out by threatening violence in the streets, Pompey said, quote, what do you reckon Caesar himself will be like if he gets to control the Republic, if now his weak and worthless quaestor acts like this? Ouch. Pompey's like, leave my hair alone, bitch. Pompey's hair is blowing back in the breeze as it should be. Come at me, bro. (laughs) I have an army and you don't, last I checked. Cicero once acidly described Antony giving a speech as, quote, vomiting his words in the usual way. And I feel like sometimes that is the uh, shout line to my life. <laughs> Let's just talk about Cicero for a second and how awesome he was. He's so freaking catty. Like what I love about Cicero is he's definitely also in middle school and he's talking behind everybody's back here. Oh my God. He's the president of the Mean Girls Society. Didn't Julius Caesar dedicate a book of grammar to him? Yes, Julius Caesar. Caesar did. Like, they were frenemies. But Cicero talked behind Caesar's back all the time. The reason that I love Cicero so much after having read a lot of Cicero is that he's so catty and he captures these, like, really human moments. He knew all these people personally. He knew all these larger-than-life figures like Mark Antony and Cleopatra, who we're going to get to, and Caesar and Cato and, and everybody. He knew them all personally, and he made these, like, really belittling observations about them. Like, I don't know, Caesar's scratching his hair in the Senate House or something. Like these little snapshots of them that make them really human. I think Cicero ruined my middle school because I did not realize what a catty bitch he was. Because if I had known the history and all of the players he was talking about, I'd be like, please, I have my popcorn. Tell me more. I have my popcorn. Give me all the nasty gossip, Cicero. I also highly recommend Letters to Friends by Cicero if you need some fun beach reading. I love that that's your beach reading. (laughs) 
<laughs> Guys, I recommend reading some really good historical fiction or mythology. Sister <laughs> and I will be cackling in the corner and making fun of everybody. Anyway, Adrian Goldsworthy gives us a glimpse of who Antony was as a person. Quote, there was a great passion in the man that always seemed ready to boil over and which gave force and massive determination to all that he did. His oratory, his soldiering, his drunkenness and womanizing all seemed to have had a power behind them that came from his personality more than skill or training. A big, burly man. It was said that he liked being compared with Hercules, just as Pompey had enjoyed references to himself as a new Alexander. And I really like, I mean, at the moment I'm drinking out of a Hercules mug. It's actually on my Instagram while we're recording this. You can scroll back into the past. And I love that comparison because you think about Hercules and he's sort of this dumb hammer, isn't he? He's just all brute force and he gets things done sort of just because he sort of smashes through. Hulk smash. He's got brute strength. That's what he's known for. And I actually think this is really clever of Antony to lean into this comparison because you don't think of Hercules as being really brainy. He's not Odysseus. He's not someone who's great at skill and being crafty and clever. Antony was Caesar's hammer, but he was also very clever. So it was really smart of him to lean into this comparison and to let people think he was a little less intelligent than he actually was. Yeah, because people would then underestimate him. So anyway, towards the end of Caesar's time in Gaul, when everyone was getting extremely twitchy and passing all this legislation against Caesar, Antony was elected tribune of the plebs, and he had one job, obstruct Caesar's enemies at every turn and smack down their laws with his veto hammer. Antony was good at this. He ate best men, for breakfast. But when the Senate finally passed its resolution to strip Caesar of his army, Rome suddenly got very, very hostile for Antony. And senators told him they couldn't guarantee his safety if he stayed in Rome. I mean, we're not threatening you, but... Take this however you want to take it, Antony. Take it. Just take my <laughs> raging anti-Caesar agenda right in the... Right in the toga. <laughs> we are not child-friendly, this podcast. If for some reason you're listening to us as part of your high school classics curriculum, why? Why would your teacher do this to you? We're sorry. And second off, your teacher's really cool. But also, maybe we're not good classic role models because we just know enough to get ourselves in trouble. Let's move on. Or maybe we're the best. I mean, we are proof that you don't have to have a classics degree to do this. Antony and another pro-Caesar tribune smuggled themselves out of the city in a wagon to go join Caesar. You definitely see Mark Antony taking a page from the Caesar playbook because he does disguise himself and sneak around a lot. Which, interestingly, Pompey doesn't do. I mean, we don't know if he did that in the Mithridatic Wars or not. It would be interesting to go back and see what he did there. Yeah, I haven't looked into Pompey's activities in the Mithridatic Wars too much at all is what I mean by that. (laughs) (laughs) I have looked into his activities and other things like the upcoming Civil War and I never see him sneak anywhere. He's too pompy. He goes everywhere like he's in his own triumph. You can't miss him. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon, seized control of the entire Italian peninsula and then strolled into Rome all friendly-like declaring himself dictator before going after Pompey, he left Antony in charge of the entire Italian peninsula. And now, with Caesar's situation getting more and more dire in Greece, it was Antony's job to get the second convoy through. Bibulus was dead, but the blockade was still going on. There was even a blockade of warships at the harbor in Brundisium. Antony, worried for Caesar, beat off the blockade and just barely slipped through with Pompey's navy in hot pursuit. As he drew closer to Greece, violent weather tossed his convoy toward a rocky, craggy shore crowded with wrecked ships, but Antony's luck held and he managed to land his convoys and get to Caesar in the nick of time. Meanwhile, Caesar had decided the staring contest across the river wasn't going anywhere, so he decamped in the night to try for Dyrrhachium again. Dyrrhachium was Pompey's supply depot, and if Caesar could capture it, Pompey would be in serious trouble. 
But even though Caesar marched fast, Pompey was just a sliver faster. He took up residence on a hill called Petra with a commanding view of the surrounding valley and control over the nearby harbor of Dyrrhachium. When Caesar arrived, he found that Pompey was between him and the city, with convoys in the harbor bringing food and supplies to Pompey's army. Caesar couldn't cut Pompey off from the sea, but he could cut him off from the surrounding countryside and make it impossible for his army to forage, especially for fresh water for their cavalry horses. Once again, Caesar drew from his Gallic playbook. Which he published and anyone else could be drawing from. Sorry. I just, I feel the need to say this. It wasn't a secret. Everyone's super surprised by things that Caesar does and he literally told you what he's going to do. So he's drawing from his Gallic playbook again because that's what he does. He built massive fortifications that made the ones from Elysia look like child's play. A wall 22 kilometers long with 22 forts spaced out along its length and a network of ditches designed to keep Pompey pinned down against the sea. Meanwhile, Pompey built his own ring of inner fortifications to protect his army from Caesar's. Caesar's goal here was to hem Pompey in, and Pompey's goal was to occupy the widest possible area. So it was competing fortifications. Pompey expanded his inner walls, forcing Caesar to build longer walls and stretch his army thin to guard them. Caesar ordered Antony to capture a nearby hill from which to harass Pompey, but Pompey pushed him off that hill, and Antony was forced to back off. Pompey and Caesar dug in and started engaging in a game of tit-for-tat. The two armies engaged in focused, violent skirmishes at weak points in the walls, but neither could advance an inch. It was like trench warfare in World War I. Meanwhile, Caesar had a food problem. He had all the farmland outside Dyrrhachium at his back, but Pompey's army had been foraging there for months, and it was picked clean. And the sea was blocked to Caesar, so he couldn't get supplies delivered. His troops had to subsist on the root of a plant called charox, which was usually fed to livestock. To get back at Pompey, Caesar began to have the rivers and streams that flowed toward Pompey's camp diverted or downed. Tit for tat. Caesar's army ran out of food. Pompey's ran out of water. Disease began to spread through Pompey's camp as Caesar's was laid low by hunger. Pompey's troops mocked Caesar's for eating animal fodder. Caesar's troops pelted Pompey's with their charox loaves and swore they'd eat tree bark before letting Pompey slip through their fingers. Meanwhile, Pompey's slingers unleashed their sling bullets at Caesar's troops while they were sleeping by their campfires, and Caesar's soldiers began sleeping in the cold and dark rather than risk getting killed by slings. And throughout all this, Pompey had to listen to the bickering and haranguing of the best men who'd followed him into war day and night. I'll take Antony any day over that. Oh, God, yeah. Say what you will about Mark Antony. That guy was a good time. Too good a time is the problem. He's your friend who you hang out with and you know you start your entire night out in the city somewhere and wake up on a beach. And you have no idea how you got there. And you have no idea what beach it is. Right, and you're naked. You're not naked. Nothing sexual necessarily happened. You just had a great time. I mean, I suspect you're naked because at one point in the evening you barfed over everything. Thing and you had to strip your clothes off and then you just ran around like that for a while because that is what happens when you hang out with Mark Antony. That is absolutely what happens when you hang out with Mark Anthony. Anyway, moving on. And throughout all this, Poppy had to listen to the bickering and haranguing of the best men cool. ugh, who'd followed him into war day and night. These guys were armchair generals. They did not know how to conduct a campaign and they had zero patience. They argued over who would get what priesthood or position when they got back to Rome, made plans to annihilate their enemies with violent prescriptions, and completely loudly and at length to anyone who was standing around about how long the war was taking and why wouldn't Pompey just step things up a notch and crush Caesar already. It must have been excruciating. 
Finally, Pompey got fed up from all the haranguing and launched a series of brutal attacks against a weak point in Caesar's defenses. Three of Caesar's cohorts had to hold off an entire legion of Pompey's forces. A legion contained 10 cohorts, so Pompey's troops outnumbered Caesar's here by more than triple. Caesar's troops managed to hold Pompey off, but it was by the skin of their teeth. His people came under a vicious rain of slings and arrows from Pompey's side. And again, slings are ancient world bullets. Like, I always used to hear that not really know what it meant, but they were little bullets. They were bullets and they were fired extremely fast at very close range and they they were absolutely deadly. In the commentaries, Caesar tells us that more than 30,000 arrows were picked up from the ground in that fort after the battle. Not a single soldier inside escaped without a wound and four centurions in one cohort lost an eye. One centurion's shield was pierced with 230 holes. He survived, incidentally, and Caesar promoted him as he should. So far, Pompey had the advantages, but as time dragged on, this started to change. The lack of fresh water was taking a toll. The autumn was coming and with it the grain harvest. Soon the countryside at Caesar's back would have more to forage. Pompey was starting to get desperate. But then Pompey had a stroke of luck. Up until now, not a single soldier had defected from Caesar's side to Pompey's, although defections from Pompey's side to Caesar's side were a regular occurrence, at least according to Caesar. But that was about to change. Caesar had two high-ranking Gallic noblemen in his army, brothers named Aegis and Rusculus. They were from Transalpine Gaul, the part of Gaul that was already a Roman province when Caesar started his invasion. And they'd fought on Caesar's side for the whole Gallic War. Caesar had rewarded them and made them leaders of their own tribes. But these brothers got a little too sure of Caesar's goodwill. Caesar says they, quote, presumed on Caesar's friendship. Again, with the third person. Ugh. We're going to continue. They presumed on Caesar's third-person friendship and were elated with the arrogance natural to a foolish and barbarous people. Oh, Caesar, why? Barf, Caesar. Yes. At any rate, these men led Gallic auxiliaries, war bands of Gallic tribes who were loyal to them, not Caesar. And they'd been taking their men's pay for themselves. So their men went over their heads and complained to Caesar. And Caesar handled it leniently by giving the brothers a nice, friendly talking to in private. We're told he didn't punish the brothers. He deployed his trademark mercy. But the brothers must have seen behind the mask. We're not exactly sure what Caesar said to these brothers word for word, but for some reason his mercy made them fear for their lives. Caesar's nice, lenient talking to gave them the idea that they were better off deserting. So they decamped to Pompey's side, bringing a number of cattle and a retinue of warriors, and you can see a trace of the old Gallic culture here. These warriors would follow their chieftain even unto death or Pompey, even though those chieftains had cheated them. Pompey took the brothers around to Caesar's fortifications and had them point out the weak spot. I mean, that's a great idea, Pompey. It's almost like Pompey knew what he was doing. It's almost like Pompey, you know, got rid of the Mediterranean pirate problem in a month and won the Mithridates War and then cleaned up the Spartacus conflict. Crassus would be so pissed at you right now. I know he would, my man Crassus. (laughs) (laughs) He is in a blanket fort, it's fine. (laughs) His head is in a play. His throat is filled with gold. He got everything he needed. Right. It's all he wanted in life. Oh, rest in peace, Crassus. (laughs) So then, now that I've let Pompey have a little bit of Spartacus credit, even though he doesn't deserve it, Pompey formulated a plan. He took his soldiers out at midnight to the weak point in Caesar's walls, the furthest distance from Caesar's main camp. 
he managed to punch a hole through Caesar's defenses, seizing an area outside the walls and immediately fortifying it. Caesar could not let this stand. If Pompey could access the area outside of his fortifications, Caesar was dead. So Caesar immediately sent cohorts to attack the camp while it was still lightly defended. But then Pompey sent five legions, a massive number of men. This was serious overkill, and Caesar's troops, seeing the size of the force against them, panicked. First, they attempted to stream back in through their own defenses, and this was a disaster. They got stuck in their own network of walls and ditches and narrow passageways inside the fortifications. Pretty much Pompey did to Caesar what Caesar did to Vercingetorix. Essentially, Caesar's men got caught up in their own defenses, the way that when the outside Gauls in the episode three of Vercingetorix got caught up in Caesar's defenses. Yeah, because there was this network of ditches and stuff. Yeah, and that's exactly what the point that I was making earlier was that Caesar was drawing right from his Elysia playbook, like right from the Gallic playbook, building all these forts and walls and ditches and traps and stuff. But this time you see it working against Caesar. Mm-hmm. First, they attempted to stream back in through their own defenses, and this was a disaster. They got stuck in their own network of walls and ditches and narrow passageways inside the fortifications, military discipline broke down and chaos ensued as a crowd of Caesar's men threw themselves down a 10-foot-high drop and into a trench and were then crushed to death by others piling down on top of them. Finally, the trench filled with living bodies and the rest of the troops escaped by trampling over it. So, right, Jen, like you were saying, we see Caesar drawing from his Gallic playbook here. He personally joined the battle, rallying his troops by name like he'd done at Elysia and ordering them to stop retreating. But this time, his men ignored him entirely. His cavalry galloped right past him. You know, like at Elysia and other points in the Gallic Wars, you see Caesar entering the battle when things get really hairy and calling on his his soldiers by name and encouraging them. And it really does work. And this time it does not work. His cavalry galloped right past him. One of them tried to stab Caesar with the pointy end of his standard as he galloped past. Caesar's bodyguard sliced off the man's arm. Youch! Caesar had been using his Gallic playbook against Pompey, but those tricks didn't work as well against Pompey as they had against Vercingetorix. You could argue that maybe Pompey was the more experienced general, but also Pompey had a lot of advantages over Vercingetorix. First off, his margin of error wasn't completely non-existent. He wasn't operating under the absolutely brutal conditions Vercingetorix was faced with. Pompey had more supplies. Yeah, and second, Pompey's people had better equipment than the Gauls did. Both armies were using the standard issue Roman army gear, and his troops came from the same culture as Caesar's. True, they were raw recruits, but they weren't operating under a more individualistic method of waging war. He didn't have to drill conformity into them quite so hard. Although Pompey did have a cabal of bickering best men, second-guessing his every decision like Vercingetorix's chieftains did to him. So in that way, they did have that in common, I guess. You could argue that Pompey's troops weren't as good as Caesar's. He outnumbered Caesar two to one, if not more, but his were inexperienced and Caesar's were very experienced and loyal. Plus, Pompey was dealing with massive armchair generaling and second-guessing at every turn from the other senators in his camp, and some of that had to be trickling down to the troops. So Caesar probably had better discipline. But Pompey's army was still made up of men raised in the disciplined culture of ancient Rome, not the individualistic warrior culture of Gaul. And when the circumstances were right, they could rout Caesar's troops, even get them to break ranks and run. This happened in Gaul as well, but it was very rare. So Pompey won that round. And things were looking bad for Caesar. Pompey now had an established toehold outside of Caesar's fortifications. Labianus, Caesar's one... <laughs> 
It's just labianus, man. I'm sorry. Sometimes someone's name is labianus and we have to talk about him. There's nothing we can do about it. Labianus, Caesar's one-time <laughs> lieutenant in Gaul, lined up a bunch of captive troops from Caesar's side and had them executed in full view of Caesar. It's not very nice, but, you know, they meant business, Caesar. Right. They weren't kidding around. As we said in Germanicus, they come there to chew gum and kick Caesar's ass and they were all out of gum. So Caesar decided to change the game entirely. He packed his shit in the middle of the night. And this is yet another thing Caesar does. If he decides things aren't going his way, he just takes his fucking ball and goes home. He packed his shit in the middle of the night, abandoned the siege, and headed south. Caesar came upon the town of Gomphi. And this town had once agreed to side with Caesar, but hearing of Caesar's defeat at Dyrrhachium, which is how it was being spun, they decided they did not want to be on the losing side. When Caesar's army rolled up to their walls, they closed their gates and sent messages to Pompey to come to their aid. But Pompey was still still at least a day's march away, and Caesar took the town before Pompey could get there, and this time, he slipped the leash on his soldiers and let them drown the town in its own blood. They massacred the inhabitants and stripped the town of its wealth and supplies. The town magistrates who'd made the call not to let Caesar in committed suicide. This was the flip side of Caesar's mercy. He did it to send a stern message to other towns. There were consequences for not surrendering peacefully. Caesar's troops were in a great mood after the assault of Gonfi. Because they loved pillaging. They did, and they hadn't been able to pillage as much as they wanted to because these were people who were friends to Rome, and we don't want to get our friends upset with us, but now, now, they are not our friends. Go pillage, my friends. They're allowed to pillage, and this just made their little day, made their little heart sing. It made their day because this is how they got their wealth, and this is how they were able to eventually retire whenever their term in the army ended. Right, I mean, and also pillaging was like a hobby that they were really, really, really into. I mean, would we call it a hobby? more like a job perk, which is not a good perk if you're a person being pillaged from. No, it's freaking terrible. Plutarch tells us that they, quote, reveled and rioted drunkenly through the countryside, reviving their health and spirits. From there, all the towns in his path opened their gates to Caesar because they did not want to be his next example. And this probably was a disappointment to the pillage-loving troops. I know. They're like, now we can't pillage? Caesar. I bet there were people in that army who were actually mad about this. Oh, totally. Even though Caesar was now rampaging through Greece, Pompey was in the power position. He'd won the round at Dyrrhachium. Even so, after Caesar left, Pompey got an earful from all the best men. Ugh. Ugh. Some thought he should abandon Caesar here, go back to Italy, and take back Rome. Others wanted him to risk a full-on battle with Caesar to end this shit already so they could get home and coast into their next lucrative jobs and have their purges and all would be as it should be. But Pompey didn't like any of those options. If he headed back to Italy without delivering a decisive defeat to Caesar, people might spin it as a retreat. But attacking Caesar's more experienced veterans head-on still looked like a bad idea unless he was strategic about it. So Pompey decided to pull a Vercingetorum on Caesar, kicking him in the stomach, which means not letting him forage or have any food. Yeah, which means everyone was hungry and bitchy. Yeah, everyone was really hangry. Pompey pursued Caesar as he marched south. He didn't risk an open confrontation. Instead, he harried Caesar's army the whole way. For 291 miles, the two armies played a game of cat and mouse, maneuvering around each other, each one trying to tempt the other into battle on each general's chosen ground. But both Pompey and Caesar were too savvy to fall into each other's traps. Finally, on the plains outside a town called Pharsalus, the two armies were at a standoff, Pompey's army occupying the high ground and trying to entice Caesar to attack. 
Caesar, reluctant to bring it under less than favorable circumstances, Pompey's position was too strong. This was the Battle of Bibrax all over again, but in reverse. Nine years ago, at the beginning of the Gallic War, Caesar was facing a great army of Belgae that stretched over eight miles. He'd been the one to pick a too strong position and dig in, hoping for his Gallic enemy to have the bad sense to attack on very unfavorable ground. Now Pompey was pulling the same condescending bullshit on him. Maybe he did read the commentaries, Caesar, you idiot. Why did you publish your strategy? Pompey is the only person in Rome who read the commentaries. Good for you, Pompey. This is why you're a genius. Pompey was the golden boy. Like, he sometimes gets underestimated in history, but Pompey really did know what he was doing. He only gets underestimated in the same way that Crassus does because of Caesar. Exactly. Caesar didn't bite. He did what the Belgae did. Decided it was a bad time to keep his army hanging out too long in one place while he waited for Pompey to blink. Instead of engaging in battle, Caesar packed his shit with every intention of moving off. But just as his army was moving out of that plane, Caesar looked behind him and saw that Pompey's army was actually coming down the hill. And now they were milling around on the plane. Caesar switched gears almost immediately, rallied his army, and said he was just kidding, assholes. We're going to have this fight. The two armies arrayed themselves on the plane. Pompey had about 45,000 men, and Caesar had just 22,000. Caesar positioned his army with the 10th Legion, his favorite legion. The golden children. The golden children on the right side of the battle line where he assumed the fighting would be fiercest. He gathered his cavalry in this area too. I think Mark Antony was leading the 10th at that point. He also, in secret, took a small group of three infantry cohorts, about 500 guys total, figure a few hundred on foot, and moved them to the right of the right flank at an angle behind his cavalry. Pompey arrayed his army so that his cavalry faced Caesar's cavalry, and Pompey's cavalry outnumbered Caesar's six to one. Pompey's plan was to wrap his cavalry around Caesar's and overwhelm them fast, then push in from the edge to flank the rest of Caesar's army. And I have to like bring this up. I watched it was like a Mary Beard documentary. I forget which one. She said that basically all of the ancient world battle tactics could basically be boiled down to going round the back, which I just found hilariously true. Pompey's plan here is to overwhelm Caesar's cavalry and then go round the back and get him from behind. That's probably a huge oversimplification, but I just it's kind of of like a good way if you're trying to parse through military history and you're just like, wait, what is going on? Why are these people maneuvering? Just figure that both sides are of the army are probably trying to figure out how to get around the back and stop the other person from getting around the back. So that's what's going on here. Maybe because they were sort of behind the cavalry, obscured by the dust from the horses' hooves, Pompey didn't notice that line of a couple hundred foot soldiers Caesar had angled to the right of his cavalry. It's really important not to forget that this was a civil war. The troops on both sides weren't fighting an enemy from another country. They were fighting their own countrymen. The enemy was armed the same, dressed the same, and fought the same. To cut down on confusion, both sides gave their troops a password. Venus, bringer of victory for Caesar's side, and Hercules the Unconquered for Pompey's. Those are really cumbersome passwords. I bet it took a while for them to just spit that out on the battlefield. Actually, I don't think so, because in Latin, most of these passwords were only one to two words. The declensions on the verb give you all of the information you need to know, so it's less wordy. So the declensions basically add these little suffixes to the verbs that give you information that you need a whole other word in English to convey. Exactly. It would have been maybe two to three words at most. That is fascinating, and I didn't know that. It's really fascinating, because the language was much more direct. You wouldn't need as many words as you do when you're translating it into English. Right. You can tell who did and did not study Latin in this podcast. 
Moving on, in this battle, you can see why Pompey feared the deep experience and discipline of Caesar's army. Caesar's infantry advanced on Pompey's. The normal order of operations was that both sides would advance, fling their pilums, and pilums are light spears that the Roman infantry famously carried. They would fling their pilums at each other and then close in to fight hand-to-hand in a tight formation. It was crucial to keep your formation tight and not break ranks. Otherwise, your enemy could just run right over you. Caesar's infantry advanced through their pilums, and Pompey's didn't. The danger was that Caesar's men had thrown their pilums too soon, and now the timing was off. This is bad. They were now in danger of rushing forward too soon, too far, too fast, and breaking their line of formation. That could be a disaster. Spontaneously, in an incredible display of ice-cold discipline, Caesar's line halted, regrouped, and tightened up their ranks before advancing once more. And this sounds maybe like not a big deal, but in the heat of battle with all these men involved, it was really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, and this is a thing that we could do a whole episode about, how armies communicated on the battlefield. Nobody had phones, nobody had cell phones, nobody had megaphones. Like, there's no aid to communication, you know? So figuring out how to do things at the same time was really hard. Yeah, and that's where things like eagles and standards and horse or plume helmets... Carnesses. Carnesses, they all come into play here. The two sides of infantry engaged, heavy battle erupting all down the line. But Pompey didn't care what went on with his infantry. His cavalry outnumbered Caesar's six to one, and he expected to win this battle through them. Pompey's cavalry was enthusiastic, but inexperienced. A mixture of recruits from diverse areas without common language or fighting styles, led by equally inexperienced young aristocratic officers. Goldsworthy says that the horses were probably not in great shape after the last siege of Dracium, and this charge probably did not go faster than a trot. At first, they maintained formation and even forced Caesar's more experienced cavalry to retreat. But this was a fake out. Pompey's cavalry got carried away with their victory, surged after Caesar's horsemen in a chaotic line, and right then, Caesar ordered his fourth line, that group of maybe 500 guys to the right of the right line on foot, to advance on Pompey's cavalry with their spears held high. Their orders were to aim at the enemy's faces because Pompey's troops would be more afraid of losing their good looks than their lives. And you don't see infantry attacking cavalry a lot in ancient battles. It was unexpected. Pompey's cavalry, already in chaos, dissolved into further chaos. Their commanders struggling and failing to hold control. Suddenly, it was a stampede in the wrong direction. Pompey's entire cavalry galloped off the field. This ruined Pompey's plan. He'd assumed his cavalry would take Caesar's easily, but that was not how it played out. Meanwhile, Caesar ensured tight, unrelenting discipline on that fourth line. He didn't let them chase after Pompey's stampeding cavalry. Instead, he swung them around like a throwing star, embedding them in Pompey's left flank. Meanwhile, Caesar's infantry were making headway against the rest of Pompey's line, even though they were outnumbered two to one. Soon, Pompey's entire army was following the cavalry in a full-on running retreat. The last great hope of the Republic had been defeated. Caesar stormed Pompey's camp with his army at his heels and slaughtered everyone he found there, except the best men. He wanted those assholes to see him massacre everyone else and understand that he'd spared their lives as a special favor. They got a dose of Caesar's infamous mercy. Caesar's army killed about 15,000 people in Pompey's camp that day. I guess these were, a lot of these were camp followers and stuff, and captured 24,000 more. He let most of the high-ranking aristocrats who had followed Pompey escape that day. Cicero didn't take part in the Battle of Pharsalus. He was out sick. (laughs) 
Oh, I've got a <clears throat> sore throat. Terrible cold. I just cannot make the battle. Rain check. But he recovered quickly enough when he saw Caesar's army approaching, and he slipped away, sailing back to Brundisium. He lay low for months, trying to figure out how he was going to put his life back together and survive in what was apparently now a dictatorship. Cato also wasn't at Pharsalus for the final battle. Pompey decided that letting Cato have too much power was iffy because Cato was such a freaking intolerable crusader that the minute they defeated Caesar, he'd be calling for Pompey to disarm his own army. When all this started, Cato had bluntly said to Pompey that he'd advise him, but don't expect them to be friends or anything. Pompey himself was breaking too many rules in terms of amassing his own power for Cato to trust him. So Pompey didn't give Cato anything to command. He left Cato in Dyrrachium, told him he was in charge there to keep him busy, and called it a day. When Cato found out that Pompey lost, he refused to accept defeat. He gathered 15 of Pompey's old cohorts and set sail for Utica, a town in North Africa, about 30 miles from ancient Carthage. His plan was to never surrender to Caesar, never give up, never, ever, 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 ever give up. As for Pompey, with his army in shambles and Caesar rapidly approaching his camp, Pompey slipped quietly away, removing his general's insignia as he went. Taking only a handful of his closest followers, the great man abandoned his army, which a noble general was definitely not supposed to do. He rode 26 miles to the town of Larissa. Then, being blisteringly thirsty, he threw himself down on his face to drink from a river. After that, he kept going, one foot in front of the other, 25 or 30 more miles until he reached the sea. Pompey took refuge in a fisherman's hut, and at the crack of dawn, he set out in a small rowboat. He only had room for two other people, so he picked his two most trusted freedmen and sent the rest back to Caesar, thanking them for their service. Then, hugging the coastline, Pompey rode. Meanwhile, a merchant named Petesius was about to put his ship out to sea. The night before, he had a strange dream, in which Pompey the Great himself stood before him, all downcast and humble. Petesius was just telling his sailors about this dream when someone spotted a rowboat. Petesius brought his boat up alongside and was astonished to see it was Pompey, looking downcast and humble, just like in his dream. Petesius pulled the great man on board, along with his two freedmen. Then he set out to Mytilene at Pompey's request to pick up Pompey's wife Cornelia and their son. Cornelia had fully expected Pompey to win. She had once been married to Crassus's son Publius, who died with his father in Parthia, and now she was crazy about Pompey. Because, remember, Pompey was actually nice to his wives, which was vanishingly rare in the ancient world. And also, the bar was really low, but let's give Pompey a pat on the back for being nice to his wives. Yay, Pompey, good for you. Pompey parked his boat in the harbor and sent a messenger to go break the news to Cornelia. She had fully expected Pompey to win and was grief-stricken when she heard the news. The messenger couldn't even bear to tell her in words and communicated only by crying. He bade her, quote, hasten if she had any wish to see Pompey with one ship only and that not his own. Cornelia cast herself on the ground, unable to even speak. Then she picked herself up and ran through the city to the harbor. Pompey met her and caught her in his arms and after much lamentation together, they went on board the ship. Pompey sailed for days, making landfall only to resupply. In Adelaea, he met 60 senators and heard some uplifting news. Cato had fled to Utica with 15 cohorts, and Pompey's navy was still hanging on. Pompey perked up. There was still a chance here. The battle was lost, but the war wasn't over. He started planning, calling upon friends and allies, raising money, and calling his ships to him. 
But Pompey had seen how quickly Caesar had acted before, and he was worried his enemy might get wind of his activities before Pompey was ready. He needed a safe harbor from which to prepare. Pompey weighed his options. He considered sailing to Parthia, but his advisor, a guy named Theophanes, trotted out a whole bunch of offensive barbarian stereotypes about the Parthians and their king, Arzaces, being untrustworthy and licentious and just having no scruples whatsoever. Uh. He also suggested that the place wouldn't be safe for Pompey's wife, which clinched it for Pompey. Parthia was out. But there was still Egypt. And actually, this was a good idea. Pompey had long been a patron of the Ptolemies, the current ruling family. And he had even helped the previous pharaoh, Ptolemy XII, get and hold his throne. But now Ptolemy XII was dead, and his 14-year-old son, Ptolemy XIII, was in charge. Pompey felt that since he'd done so much for the Ptolemies, been such a fateful ally for so long, that he could call in a favor. So he sailed to Egypt with every intention of leveraging his past largesse to get Ptolemy XIII to do him a solid for the sake of his dad. Pompey climbed on a trireme with his wife and son and made it to Egypt safely. But the young Ptolemy was kind of busy at the moment. He and his sister, Cleopatra, Wait, 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 wait. That Cleopatra? That Cleopatra, Jen. Are we getting to that soon? Oh, we are getting to her. Don't you worry. Anyway, these two siblings had been raised to the throne of Egypt as joint rulers after their father's death, but that had devolved quickly, and now they were engaged in a civil war. From his trireme, Pompey sent a message to Ptolemy, announcing his presence and asking for help. The 14-year-old Ptolemy assembled his counselors. The advice that he got varied wildly. Some suggested that he drive Pompey away, others that he bring him into the fold. A guy named Theodore who was a rhetoric teacher and thus totally qualified to advise on matters of state. Cicero would agree. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Made this point. Look, we can't take Pompey in and we can't send him away. If we take him in, we make an enemy of Caesar and you've seen how that guy operates. But if we send him away, we'll be in an even worse position. Pompey will hate us for refusing him refuge. And if he builds up his power base again, we could be in serious trouble. And Caesar will hate us for letting his enemy escape. We just don't know how this war in Rome will unfold and we can't take sides. There's only one thing we can do, said Theodotus. A dead man, he said, smiling, does not bite. And that's why when Pompey came up on the deck of his ship with his wife and his followers, he was surprised to see not a royal welcome, but a small fishing boat approaching, carrying just three men. This seemed a little off to Pompey, and he ordered his ship to sail back to sea. But then the men in the boat stood and greeted Pompey as imperator in Latin and Greek, explaining that the sea wasn't deep enough here for a royal trireme. But even then, armed men were gathering on the shore. Royal escort or murderous mob. Things were looking a little fishy. Cornelia was freaking out. She saw doom in all of this. Pompey stayed calm. He hugged his wife and son and stepped into the boat with one of his trusted freedmen. It was a long, awkward row. Nobody in the boat spoke. Eventually, Pompey said to one of the rowers, Surely I'm not mistaken, you are an old comrade of mine. The rower nodded and said nothing else. Super awkward. Pompey's attempts at small talk did not bear fruit. Pompey, after a few more awkward minutes, took a little scroll out of his toga where he'd written a speech to Ptolemy and started to read it silently. The whole time, his wife Cornelia, their son, and his friend watched anxiously from the deck of the ship. The rowboat reached the shore, and Pompey's freedmen got out first, turning back to help Pompey out behind him. And then, as that was happening, one of the rowers drew a sword and stabbed Pompey in the back, and then the second rower stabbing him from behind with their daggers. Pompey drew his toga over his face and sank to his knees in the sea, blood staining the water, and committed, quote, not an act or a word that was unworthy of himself, as he was stabbed to death in knee-deep ocean. He was barely 59 years old. It was a day past his birthday. Birthday. 
It's said that the cry that went up from the trireme could be heard from shore. The Egyptians tried to catch Pompey's trireme, but the captain raised the anchor and caught the leading edge of a strong, sudden wind and was away, just like that, and no one could catch him. Meanwhile, the Egyptian rowers cut off Pompey's head and took it with them. Pompey's freedman, a man named Philip, who'd been with the general a long time, stayed with the body. He waited until everyone else had left. Then he washed the body in seawater, wrapped it in his own shirt, and dragged it to the shore. Then he walked down the beach until he found an old, abandoned fishing boat. He dragged this back to the body and began gathering wood to build a funeral pyre. It's said an old man came up to him on the beach then, a former legionary who'd served in his youth with Pompey. Not the one from the rowboat, just a different one. Together, the two men built a pyre and sent the great man on his journey, Rome's greatest general, gone to his gods, in an abandoned fishing boat. Caesar, meanwhile, was hot on Pompey's trail because even in defeat, Pompey was a dangerous enemy. He still had vast wealth, enormous connections, and a massive reputation. Client kings who wanted to get in with Rome would no doubt bet on him over Caesar and be eager to send him troops and supplies. Caesar's victory and his life depended on keeping Pompey from building his strength back up. So he moved quickly, taking with him only a small group of soldiers and arriving in Egypt just three days after Pompey's murder. He was met by Ptolemy's envoys. They presented him with Pompey's signature ring and his severed head. Plutarch says that Caesar wept at the sight of the ring and refused to look at the head. Caesar's grief may well have been genuine. There had once been a real friendship between the two men, as well as the memory of Julia, Caesar's daughter and Pompey's wife. Goldsworthy says that it was unlikely Caesar had planned to kill Pompey himself. What he wanted was for Pompey to back down, acknowledge that Caesar was in fact the great and treat him like an equal. Although I don't know about that because Pompey had all these resources, right? And if he was allowed to build his power base back up, Caesar could have really been in trouble again. So what was Caesar going to do with him? Pompey couldn't live. I mean, that's kind of how I feel. I'm just like, what was your end game here, Caesar? Was it just going to be tag your it? Like, that's not how it worked. Maybe exile. I guess. But even in exile, Pompey was dangerous. So I do believe that Caesar was probably very grieved to see that Pompey had died. And maybe he was quite a bit in shock to see that someone else had done it. Or that Pompey had died, so Pompey's death had just been so unfitting of the great man he had been. Because, you know, Caesar did see him as an equal, and if a great man could die in such a in such an undignified way, then that could happen to any great man. Yeah. But it's unlikely Pompey ever would have given Caesar what he wanted. The thought that had kept him fighting was the idea that he'd survive because Caesar had let him. But Caesar didn't have time to grieve for his frenemy. Cato was still out there, burning with the hatred of a thousand sons. And Caesar had just walked into a civil war. And we'll tell you all about that in the next episode. So that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on social on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl. And check out our Patreon. We talked about this at the beginning of the episode, but it's worth mentioning again. Financial support from our patrons helps us prioritize the podcast and ease the pressure in other areas of our lives. And also, books are expensive. And hosting's expensive. And this podcast isn't free for us to produce and put out. It actually does cost quite a bit of money and the bigger it gets the more expensive it gets. Exactly and we want it to get bigger and we can only do that with your help. We massively appreciate it and everything you give to us helps us keep the podcast going. Also we have merch by the way. All our merch designs are done by JL Draco from Oneshi Press who is a super talented artist. Oneshi Press does progressive graphic novels and artwork and you should definitely do yourself a favor and check them out over at OneshiPress.com. We have mugs, tote bags, t-shirts, all kinds of things that make great gifts for the ancient history 
history lover in your life or yourself, and that might be you. So check it out from the link on our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And if you want to support us, but you're not able to give to our Patreon, there are other ways you can help. Check out our Ko-Fi account. There's a link on the homepage of our website and you can kick us in a few bucks because every little bit helps. Or check out our merch store. We've got awesome merch now and we're really proud of it. Or, you know, leave us a nice review. Those help us expand our audience and they help the podcast get seen in the algorithms. And also they're just really nice to read. Thank you so much. And we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>